This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Mailbag, nothing personal word of the weekend. Mailbag, it's the mailbag episode. This is when you go on Apple, and I appreciate wherever you get this podcast, nothing personal, whether it's Spotify or Stitcher or CastBox or Apple, but go on Apple, rate and review because that stuff matters. And when you rate five stars and then write a review, you put a question in there, in your review, and I go through with Coca, and we make a show once a month, at the end of the month where we go through your questions. This is the January 2021 mailbag bonus episode. I cannot believe we are already here at the end of January. Let's get straight to it because we have a full show. These are your questions in your words. As an owner, GM, or president, what questions are you asking managerial or head coaching candidates in an interview for the position? Well, thank you. That is an especially prescient question, given what's going on right now with all of the coaching changes in the NFL. Every sport has coaching changes every single year. It's like a carousel. Will it be a first-time coach or will it be a retread? We have to talk about, even though it's a perfect, nothing personal, regular segment, but we have to talk about Nick Sirianni, the Eagles coach who came from the Colts, who had a press conference, his opening press conference that made Adam Gase's opening press conference look like the greatest press conference of all time. Nick Sirianni took to the mic and he talked about his system. He, it was as good as Dan Campbell with the kneecaps. Remember when he took over the Lions and he gave a opening interview press conference where he said, we're going to go after the kneecaps. If you put us down, we're going to stand up. And on the way up, we're going to butt off your kneecaps. And then if you put us down again, we're going to stand up and take the other kneecap. Yeah, well, I don't even know what he was talking about. How do you get to the point where you hire someone and you're sitting there listening to them and you say, oh, my God, we made a mistake, much like happened with us and Joe Girardi when I knew we made a mistake during the opening press conference. But were we aware before the opening press conference? And the answer was yes. There is no owner or president or GM who watches the opening press conference of a newly hired coach who is surprised by what is said. They may say they're surprised when they fire the coach and when they change directions, but they're not. So when you go into a hiring situation, my interviews with managers changed very much from the first time. The first manager I ever interviewed was Jeff Torborg, and we were interviewing him to take over for Felipe Alou before we fired Felipe Alou. And I don't just say before, by accident, uh, there is 
many circumstances, if not all, where managers and coaches are being interviewed in some way, shape, or form while there is someone else doing the managering, managering and the coaching. Now, in theory, you shouldn't do that because it's not nice. It cost me my relationship with Mike Redman, one of our managers, because he got wind that we were interviewing people before we let him go, and he has not spoken to me since. It is part of the game. You cannot have a situation where you have no idea what direction you're going in and be rudderless as an organization. So when I started with Jeff Torborg, it was a fait accompli that he was going to be hired because that's what the owner wanted. So let's start with how do you interview someone when you know that that person is the candidate? You basically want to hear from them, not what their philosophy is on hit and runs or bunts or whether or not they like playing cover three or do they like lining five defensive linemen on the line of scrimmage? You don't want to know what they do on third and two from the 12 with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. You don't want to know whether or not they're going to put on the bunt with a man on second and no outs when you're tie score. None of that. That's just eyewash. And you don't need eight hours in an interview the way Theo did when he interviewed Joe Girardi and ended up hiring David Ross and spent eight hours. And remember, we did a whole thing on nothing personal. The questions are very simple. Tell me your view of what it is to be a manager. And when you answer the question, I want to know your view of dealing with the front office. I want to know your view of dealing with players. I want to know rules that you will insist upon inside your clubhouse rules of travel that you insist upon. I want to know your thoughts on Sunday lineups in terms of rest of players. I want to know your view in general of the type of player you like to have. Because it is important for a manager to articulate those answers because we are the ones as president and GM. We make the rules. We make the travel rules. We decide what's going to happen during the course of a game. And we want the manager to be on the same page in terms of situational managing, whether we're going to let him use his gut at all or never, whether we're going to allow girlfriends on the plane, wives on the team plane, whether there'll be a family trip, whether the view is he likes to do batting practice on Sundays or not. Certain logistical things we're going to want to know we're going to decide what we want and we're going to see if we can have some commonality of interest. We then get an understanding from a manager who is a first-time manager, which Jeff Torborg was not, but a first-time manager, you ask a question about philosophy of game management. And philosophy of game management means not what you do in situationally, philosophy of game management. How do you use your bench coach? How do you use your pitching coach? How do you use your hitting coach? What is your view of in-game video use? What is your view of people inside the clubhouse during the game looking at at-bats? What is your view of spring training workouts and spring training games? What is your view of how many innings pitched or how many at-bats a player needs or a pitcher needs before a season starts? Generally getting an understanding of management philosophy. Then you get to the subject of coaches. There is no manager who's ever been hired where there's not been a conversation about coaches. Doesn't happen. If you're a young manager, we say we want you to come to us with suggestions for an experienced bench coach, someone who has managed before, someone who can help you. We want someone on your staff. If you're changing leagues, you've been in the American League and now you're in the National League. We want someone on your staff who has National League experience because when you're in the American League, notwithstanding interleague uh, series, 
you don't know the National League as well as you know the American League. So we talk about coaching, experience of coaches, position of coaches, diversity of a coaching staff. We then talk about something specific like money. Here's where we see the manager of position. Here's what we are going to be paying our manager. If you are not comfortable with that, that is something you need to consider if and when an offer comes. We look at body language. When you are interviewing someone and you ask questions, you look to see what position the manager is sitting in. Anyone who I've ever interviewed, I'm always looking at body language. Are their legs crossed? Where are their hands? I look at their nails. Do they bite their nails? I look to see, I look at their teeth. Are they tobacco chewers? I look to see what shoes they're wearing. I look to see whether or not they pressed their shirt. I look to see whether or not they took the time to button their collar or snap their collar. I look to make sure that their buttons are all intact. Little things that I look at just to see that someone has some sort of personal pride. The other thing I look for when I am managing, I am asking and looking about family. Is your family moving? Are you looking to spend time in Florida? Are you looking to move permanently to Florida or to Montreal? What is it? What is the age of your kids? Not a legal question to ask, but I've got the information. I want the information. Want to make sure that we understand what the manager wants in terms of living, both in spring training and in regular season. Because managers, I've had some managers whose families don't move and they want to commute more. I've had managers whose families do move and that creates additional stress in terms of finding schools if they have school-aged kids or anything else that comes when you are relocating a family. The most important thing as I go through my list is to make sure that our owner would have a good relationship with the manager and that the manager would understand that he's going to get a call from me or the owner after every game. There's going to be a activity in the clubhouse. We're going to be in the clubhouse. We're going to want to know what's going on at all times. And we're going to want to make sure that the manager knows that, understands that, and is okay with that. So interviewing managers is the same as interviewing any employee you may have. You learn as you get better, as you do more, you learn to have a gut reaction to people and to understand and think whether or not you can live with that person because there's so many ups and downs during the course of a baseball season. There's going to be so many arguments. There's not one manager I ever had who I didn't have an argument with. Do they argue fairly? Are you going to argue in a mature way? Some people didn't like Torborg. Some people did like Jack. Some people didn't like Joe Girardi. Some people did like Mike Redmond or Freddie Gonzalez. I've had all types of managers, people who are disciplinarians, people who are calm, people who are frantic, people who are anxious, people who are experienced, people who are not experienced. The common thread to success, get ready, folks, just winning. I can handle just about anything if you're winning games. I really can. And uh, there's very few exceptions to that. The way managerial hires go bad is that the clock turns and the sun rises. The reason why it is so rare like a unicorn for a manager to be in one place for 10, 15, 18 years with the same owner, the same GM, it's just very difficult not to blame somebody when your team doesn't perform and you've heard it on nothing personal. Owners blame presidents, presidents blame GMs, GMs blame managers, managers blame players. You change out the manager first, then you change out some players, then you change out your GM, then you change out your president, then you sell the team. That's sort of the order. 
I appreciate that question. It's not easy, but don't think Jeffrey Lurie didn't know. Not Jeffrey Lurie, the owner of the Marlins and Expos. Jeffrey Lurie, the owner of the Eagles. He was watching that Nick Sirianni press conference, and he knew. He knew. Will it matter? Will it last? That'll be a good way to see. Okay. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? I have a question. Today, MLS is taking over the sale of Real Salt Lake. How does this change things for prospective buyers? I would assume there are advantages and disadvantages to negotiating with the league versus the current owner. Can you describe those? Which would you rather buy from? I assume the league, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Well, thank you. I happen to have experienced both. I have sold a team to a league, sold the team to an individual, bought a team from an individual, and bought a team that was held by an individual, but the league was threatening to hold. So what is the most important thing when you are selling your team? Any thoughts? Anyone want to raise a hand? Although the studio audience is currently zero. Coca, do you want to raise a hand? What is the, by the way, it's Coca, not Mikey. Coca is now the full-time mailbag guy. Thank you, Coca. What is the number one thing that you are looking for when you are selling a team? The highest price. Yes, you got it. Period. That's all that matters. What you have to say for PR, because your PR people will tell you to say it, I'm going to sell the team to someone who's going to keep the team in this city. No one cares. I'm going, no owner cares. I'm going to sell the team to someone who can keep our traditions going and bring you the winning you deserve. Owners don't care. They're looking for the highest price. In order to get the highest price, what do you need? You need leverage. The way you get leverage is by having multiple bidders. If you are the league and you have control of a team, you are not looking for the highest bidder. You are looking for someone who is going to cooperate with you as commissioner and vote the way you want to vote, the vote the way you want the owner to vote, the ownership group that you want to have in place who will be helpful to you in your execution of duties as commissioner, as a league. You don't want Mark Cuban, in other words. You want someone who will be right in line. When you hold a team as a league and you are responsible for the sale, you are interested in expediency. You want that team sold as quickly as possible. When you are an individual who is selling a team, you want competition. You want to take the time that is necessary to get as many groups involved as possible. You want to create a bidding war. And you want to maximize your price with almost reckless indifference toward timing. There are some advantages when a team takes over. When a league takes over selling of a team, those advantages are actually not to the owner of the team who the team is now taking over. The advantages actually are to the buyer of the team because you are dealing with people in the commissioner's office who don't have money in the game. They don't, what's the expression, Coca? They don't have a stake in the game. That's not the expression. They don't have a, oh my God, Coca. They don't have a hand in the stake, a, um, a, a, a cow in the, a, a dog in the hunt. Oh my heaven. They really don't have a true dog in the hunt. 
So the question is, why would a league then choose skin in the game, by the way, is another way. Thank you, Coca. It's skin in the game, dog in the hunt. I couldn't have mixed that metaphor more. That makes me laugh. Okay. MLS in the case, and to answer your question a little more directly, the reason why they took over the sale of Real Salt Lake, as you recall, it was under circumstances where there was a forced sale and it was necessary for that owner due to certain things that had gone on that you may recall during 2020, during all of the racial inequality, systemic racism, all of that was going on. And I, I think I've got that right team in, in, in my mind. So the league was taking over in order to make sure that the deal was going to get done and to in, enable a barrier. Why is that important? There is something to be said, for example, when Steve Ballmer bought directly from Donald Sterling with the Los Angeles Clippers and Donald Sterling was forced to sell because of his being a racist. Steve Ballmer took over, paid about two, $2 billion, and he was able to come in and say, I'm now the owner. Everything is going to be better, more calm. We're going to win. And I am not in any way going to create any sort of waves. Those are examples are pretty few and far between because getting individual billionaires like Steve Cohn or Steve Ballmer, most of the time you're getting really rich people putting groups together to buy teams. And by the league taking charge of a sale, that takes the owner, the current owner of Salt Lake, it takes him out of the paper, it takes him out of the process, and it basically cuts the legs off a negative story. Because one thing that interests all leagues and all commissioners is anytime there's any negativity or a forced sale because of a crime that's committed or because the, the owner's racist or convicted or whatever is going on, you want to immediately change the narrative and you want to sort of calm down the fires. And to do that, you make it so you don't have a situation like with the Marlins where we were in the press every day trying to drum up more buyers, trying to make believe there were more buyers, trying to get the highest price possible by, you know, telling Jeter and A-Rod to compete against each other. All of those things keep us in the news. And we were purposefully put ourselves in the news because we wanted the world of potential buyers to know that not only were we for sale, but we were open for business and available to any potential buyer. When a league gets involved, they choose to be much more quiet about how the sales process is done. You may recall in baseball, the league got involved in selling the Washington Nationals to Ted Lerner. You may recall that the league got involved in selling the Red Sox during the franchise swap that we did in 2002, where John Henry took over the Red Sox. And they wanted as little media coverage as possible for these because they wanted, like with the Dodgers, which, by the way, happened when they had the Dodgers sold to the Guggenheim partners uh, and Mark Walter as the as the uh, general partner. There were plenty of other people bidding, but they wanted Frank McCourt to sell. He had to sell as part of his divorce, and they wanted Frank McCourt not to have any sort of platform anymore. So when leagues get involved, they cut the legs out of the current owner. The last part of your question is who would I rather buy from? And the answer is it doesn't matter to me as a buyer. I've dealt with the league and I've dealt with individuals. And for me, it's, again, just about leverage. And all you need to get a good price when you are buying something is someone who's not just a willing seller, but a required seller. And that's the same whether you're buying a car. When you are buying a car from someone, a used car, you're going to get a way better price if there's someone about to break the kneecaps of the person who owns the car because he owns money. He owes money to a gambler or a bookie 
or he is uh, he's about to get kicked out of his house because he can't make his mortgage payments. Leverage. Leverage is all that is necessary to maximize your price. Okay, here's my question. What are one or two of the biggest power plays you've ever seen a player attempt to make against a team or ownership? And are any leagues more prone to it than others? Thank you for asking that. Yes, I've seen a lot of players make power plays. Let's start with the biggest power play. One of the biggest that I came across was a power play that Hanley Ramirez played against us when he was with the Marlins when we were signing Jose Reyes in 2012. And he made a power play to stay at shortstop and not to play third base because we wanted Jose Reyes to play shortstop and Hanley Ramirez to play third. So I'm actually on a trip in somewhere. I can't remember where where I was. And I was on the phone uh, with Hanley and I was told in no uncertain terms by him that he was going to stay at shortstop no matter what. And I said, Hanley, do you want to win because we're about to open a new ballpark. We have an opportunity right now to bring in the best position player free agent. We are also going to sign the best pitching free agent in Mark Burley. We have a new manager who everyone is excited about. His name is Ozzie Guillen. This is really a perfect storm. We need you to be flexible because you can be a good third baseman. Hanley said he didn't want to do it, wasn't going to do it. And he said, David, if you move me to third base, I'm not going to play. And I said, Hanley, of course you're going to play because you're being paid. You're under contract. And I know you like money and I know you need money. So come to spring training and just know that you're going to be slotted in as our everyday third baseman. You're the middle of our lineup. You are our team. We need you. And I was trying the nice approach. So we're negotiating with Jose Reyes. We're very close to signing him. All we had to do was add an XG year, which we did. I think we added a sixth year to Jose Reyes to get him over $100 million. And that's all he cared about. He immediately signed and agreed to sign. Call up Hanley again. Hanley, we're getting Reyes. There's going to be a lot of media attention on us. I need you to please behave. Hanley said, I've got you. I've got you, David. I've got you, David. I'm okay. I hang up the phone and I say to Larry Beinfest, who was the president of baseball operations at the time, I said, we may have a small issue here because Hanley has an opportunity to poison this clubhouse if he chooses to make an issue out of not moving to third base. So we stay in touch with Hanley throughout the offseason. Hanley gets to spring training. We're being filmed for the franchise. He's pretending everything's great. He's filming these great scenes for the franchise. He's playing video games with Jose Reyes. He's pretending he's all friendly with Jose Reyes. They're all chummy. Everything's good. We're on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Everything is good. All of a sudden, I look at Hanley, and it was, I'll never forget it. It was in Jupiter during spring training. And I realized that Hanley wasn't playing hard. And Hanley had all of a sudden decided that he didn't want to be second banana to Jose Reyes or second banana to Giancarlo Stanton. He wanted to be the star center of the show, of the team, and he was becoming a major issue both on and off the field. I could tell that his body was changing in a way that we didn't want it to change. I could also tell that he was showing attitude to Ozzie Guillen and to us in the front office. So I approached him, and because I had known him forever when we traded, we got him in 2006 from the Boston Red Sox when we traded Beckett and Lowell to the Red Sox for a 
their top prospect and, and a guy who we thought would be a superstar whose name was Hanley Ramirez. So I said, Hanley, you know, we've been together a long time. What are you doing? I mean, are, are we screwed here? And the power play that Hanley was playing is that he thought that his behavior would force us to play him at shortstop and move Jose Reyes to third base. And I told him it wasn't going to happen. We were not moving Jose away from shortstop. And the power play was that he would do anything he could to, in theory, not help the team. But at the end of the day, if you are going to make a power play like that, you got to back it up. And Hanley, while he did have his issues, he never purposefully made an out. He never purposefully did anything other than be difficult in the clubhouse, be difficult to us in the front office. But the power play that he tried did not work because at the end, when you run a team, you are the captain. You fill out the lineup. And if the player doesn't play where you tell him to play or hit where you tell him to hit, guess what? You don't pay him. And at the end of the day, that's what the players want. All of them say they love baseball. They want to win. That's all they care about. They want rings. They are full of it. They just want money. I don't blame them. I do too. Another big power play that occurred was the Giancarlo Stanton power play. The Giancarlo Stanton power play, and, and I say this out of love and respect, you know that I'm close to Giancarlo and we continue to stay in touch. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have him as a, as a friend. But the power play that Giancarlo Stanton played is that he knew that we wanted to sign him long-term. And the power play was that he knew that we were not going to trade him. And he knew that we were so desperate to try to change the narrative of the Marlins of always trading our young players. And there was such a firestorm around Giancarlo Stanton. The thought was we were going to trade him and it would be another example of the Samson Laureate, Laurie Samson regime, not keeping their promise and not winning enough games, et cetera. And I had a conversation with Giancarlo about what was going on. He had just been hit in the face that previous season with a ball. And we knew we were going to approach him to a long-term deal. And the power play that he made is he let it be known to me that the only way he would sign a long-term deal with the Marlins is if we made it impossible for him to say no. And I asked him what that means. And he said, David, and he was with Joel Wolf, his agent, who, by the way, is Nolan Arenado's agent. Get ready for Monday's episode of Nothing Personal, where Monday, February 1st, I think is that date, where we will talk about the Nolan Arenado trade that was announced last night. But his agent is Joel Wolf. And they were very clear during our meetings and our conversations that what it means to sign a long-term deal with the Marlins is that it will be such a large deal that it will be historic as in the largest deal ever signed. Because when you offer him the largest deal ever signed, there will be no choice but for him to sign it. And the only way he's going to sign with you is if you give him no choice but to sign. That is one hell of a power play. But we still held all the cards. We could have decided not to sign him. We could have decided to trade him or let him go after six years when he was going to be a free agent. We could have made him an offer that he could have refused and then leaked to the media what the offer was and having him and having him get no sympathy because people would have said, you turned down $150 million. Players do not elicit great sympathy when they turn down $150 million or $180 million, whatever the case was going to be. So Giancarlo tried that power play and we let it work. 
We gave him $325 million over 13 years. That number did not fall out of the sky. That number was an agreed upon number that when we made him the offer, we knew that he was accepting because we sat there in a hotel suite in Beverly Hills and we knew the game that we were each playing. We needed him to sign. He didn't want to sign. In order to get him to sign, we were going to have to make it so he had no choice but to sign. And he did. So the negotiation was quite simple. There was none. And the power play did not work only in that we chose to let it work. By definition, for me, a power play is something that someone does to someone else that changes their behavior and gets you what you want from the other person. Didn't happen that way. Power plays, if you do not give up the leverage, can't work. Power plays when you have the leverage always work. Okay, next question. This was more of a statement that I found interesting that I wanted to to bring up. Consider this, that the only World Series champion in the past 26 years with a payroll in the bottom half of MLB was the 2003 Florida Marlins. Thoughts? I just want to read it again because it makes me so happy. The only World Series champion in the past 26 years with a payroll in the bottom half of MLB was the 2003 Florida Marlins. Hell yeah. I should have worn the ring for that question, Coca. Here are my thoughts. In 1999, I joined the Montreal Expos. I created, along with Jeffrey Laurie, the owner, a budget for the Montreal Expos. And the budget had within it a plugged payroll number. The plugged payroll number was 85% of the industry average at that time, because it was our view that if you did not have a payroll of 85% of the industry average, then you had no chance to win. We then made the payroll 85% of the industry average. And to do that, we had to do cash calls of all the owners of the expos because the team was going to lose a tremendous amount of money with a payroll at 85% of the industry average. The Canadian partners did not answer those capital calls. Jeffrey became the majority owner of the Expos, and the rest is history, and it ended up as Florida history. What I came to learn as years passed is that there was no way to guarantee that even having 85% of industry average payroll would lead you to win. What I realized is something called marking a player to market. And this is very interesting, given what's going on with GameStop and AMC and American Airlines and all the craziness with Robinhood and Reddit, et cetera. Marking something to market is when you mark an asset according to the actual value of that asset, not the perceived value. Shares of GameStop are not worth $200 a share. Shares of GameStop are probably worth around $10 a share. When you hold shares at 200 and they are worth 10, you can actually mark them to market in your mind and say, you've got a situation where you own something that is not worth as much as someone may be willing to pay for it. That means it's time to sell it. Or if you bought shares at 10 that are worth 200 or bought shares at 200 that are now worth 10, If you bought shares at 200 that are then worth 10, you say to yourself, but the assets of this company would indicate that the shares should be at 200. I'm not going to sell them at 10. Payrolls are the same thing. Players are the same thing. You go from player to player and you say you are a player making $500,000. 
in a free market, you would be paid about $4 million because of your production. Therefore, you are paid less than your market value. We're going to keep you. The next guy is making $10 million. We look at him. We evaluate his performance. We project his upcoming performance. And we say, you should be getting paid $3 million. Therefore, we are now down $7 million. Paying a guy 10 who's worth three. We did this exercise for every player every year. We would then come up with what our payroll should be versus what it is. What a payroll should be is every player mark to market. What a player is, what a payroll is, is what you're actually paying the player. In order to win a World Series, you need to get lucky. Did you get that? Because the question is not, what payroll do you need to win a World Series? Tampa Bay had the 28th highest payroll last year. They made it to the World Series, made it to a game six. And don't take Blake Snell out. You may get to a game seven. And who knows what could happen in a game seven? Tampa Bay had more players than any other team last year who were performing above their contract value. If you mark to market the Tampa Bay players, their payroll was the same as the Dodgers. But they had players making $500,000 who were playing like $12 million players. That is how you get into the playoffs. Once you're in the playoffs, winning the ring takes luck and circumstance and a number of two-out RBIs, a number of defensive plays where you happen to position your players in the right place, a number of C9 ground balls that become double plays instead of singles, a number of calls by an umpire who happens to give you the corner when you need it, when you need a strikeout. All of those things need to happen to actually win the ring. The better question you're asking is, what do you need to make it into the playoffs? Because you cannot win a ring unless you make it into October. So the team that has the biggest differential between their actual payroll and their mark-to-market payroll, that's the team I want to be. And that's what we were in 2003. When you've got Josh Beckett, when you've got Dontrell Willis and Miguel Cabrera, who are making a combined total of two and two and a half million dollars, and they're each 15 to 18 million dollar players, you know that you are going to have the biggest differential between what you're actually paying players and then what they're worthy, which is why all of these teams who sign these free agents and pay Bryce Harper $30 million, there is no way that Bryce Harper can ever exceed being a $30 million player. It cannot happen. And if it cannot happen, what that means is by definition, you are going to underperform because you are going to have players making more money than what they should be making. So the best way to run your team is to have as few players like that as possible. So your overall payroll is smaller than what it should be if all players were marked to market. The 82-game preseason is in the books, and it's finally time for the real season. Don't miss out on any of the NBA playoff action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. From the play-in tournament through the finals, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. From what you've seen so far, do you think they'll be a first-time winner of the NBA championship? If the Pacers... Clippers, Suns, Magic, Pelicans, or T-Wolves win, you win at plus 650. 
that six teams to root for, six chances to win. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code SAMSON, only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Okay, next. I've had some dumb questions that have gone unanswered, but I think I've got you with this one. Has Major League Baseball ever considered a youth pipeline like soccer has with paid youth teams affiliated with their clubs? Thank you for asking that question. Let's give you some background into what happens in soccer. What they do over in Europe is that the big league soccer teams, whether it's the Premier League, the Serie A League, whatever the league is, those teams have youth academies. Those academies bring in kids. They teach them how to play soccer. And they hope that at the end of the day, some of those kids will grow up and become club soccer players, will play for their country or for their team. That's the goal. And if they're not good enough, they get weeded out and you just hope you've created a soccer fan for life. The equivalent is our minor league system in baseball, where we bring in players who are young, whether they're from the Dominican or internationally and they can be 16 years old or whether they're from the United States where they have to be seniors in high school and 18 years old, you bring them into your minor league system, you develop them and you hope that some of them become major leaguers and help you, but the majority of them disappear and they go become, you know, real estate people or whatever they become. Baseball realized that its demographics were getting older and older, that its audience was getting older and older, its fan base was getting older and older. They also realized they were not getting enough African-American participation. They realized that there was not enough diversity and they realized that pipelines were not being developed in cities, so fans were not being created. So MLB has decided since Rob Manford became commissioner that he was going to unite baseball from little league up to the big leagues. He calls it, I want to say one baseball, but I could be wrong. His initiative was to copy exactly what's going on in soccer overseas to have all of the teams create these youth academies. The Marlins were supposed to have a youth academy in Miami as part of the stadium deal. It never happened. The Washington Nationals created a youth academy as part of the deal when they got a team in Washington. There are many of these youth academies around baseball. There are programs like RBI, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities, where Major League Baseball and its teams pay to have uh, minority, diverse players from, in, from the inner city play on teams, and they get to play in tournaments and leagues, and we coach them, and we train them, and we hope that some players who play in the RBI or some players who play in Little League will grow up and become Major League players. That's the goal. 
What's the reality? The reality is that it's so hard to be a professional baseball player. It is so hard to make it to the major leagues that even having your own RBI team or your own youth academy or your own sort of youth pipeline, you are not doing that because you think you are training the next first baseman for your big league team because the odds are so remote that the juice is not worth the squeeze. The reason why teams in the United States do these academies is because they feel that is a way they can give back to the community and get positive PR and try to get parents to like your hometown team because you are providing something for their children to do. That is the reality of why baseball has these academies because it is a social, what's the right word here, Coca? Because it is the right thing to do to be involved in your community, to get people playing baseball, to get them off the street, but you're really trying to build your fan base and you're really trying to build your pipeline. Remember what we've talked about, how you start with people just being aware there's a baseball team in your community and then you get them to be, get them to be aware that you're actually playing a game and then you get them to be aware what a score of a game is. Then you get them to maybe watch a game on TV for five or 10 minutes and then you get them to watch a game for longer. Then you get them to get invited to a game and go to a game. Then you get them to buy a ticket. Then you get them to buy a ticket plan and then they become a full season ticket holder. That's the pipeline. We've talked about that. It's the same thing. We're just making the pipeline longer by getting kids involved in youth baseball. We are simply trying to create fans. And by creating fans, you are creating value for your asset, for your league, for your team. It's really that simple. So if you're asking, has MLB considered youth pipeline? They're not just considering it. They're doing it. But I'd like you to keep track of the number of big league players who play in these academies or an RBI. The numbers are tiny. There are some success stories, but the moral of the story is if you think that your child is good enough to be a big league player, he better be the best player on every team he's ever played at by so far and away. It's like Tiger Woods going to a golf tournament at eight and winning a high school college golf tournament. That's how good your kid has to be. I appreciate that question. Now, by the way, the follow-up to that question, thank you, Coca, for ordering this way. Hello again, David. Hello. I have a question that piggybacks from your discussion about games being broadcasted on Nickelodeon. Over your career, how have you seen MLB's presence in kids' media change over time? What are the reasons for this change, and who's responsible for MLB nearly abandoning kids' media? I'm a teacher, and I see NBA, NFL, and WWE personalities in my students' entertainment, but MLB is nowhere to be found. I live in the New York TV market, and my eighth grade students can't identify Aaron Judge, but they can Anthony Davis. Thank you. You are getting right down to what makes Rob Manford have night sweats. You are getting down to what every owner and every, t every team president thinks about and hires outside consultants, PR consultants, marketing people, salespeople. We are always looking for new people to solve the age-old question, how do we get younger? The first answer we tried, these little leagues, these pipelines, RBI, all the initiatives to get youth baseball participation, but that's not enough, not even close. 
what the NFL and MLB do that we've never been able to do. It's called star power. Quickly, can you pick Nolan Arenado out of a lineup? Quickly. How many people follow Mike Trout on Twitter or Instagram? Trevor Bowers become popular because he's on social media and he interacts with fans and he's got something to say as absurd as it can be many times. Trevor Bauer will never be the face of baseball because he's not good enough to be the face of baseball. We don't have a face of baseball. Who remembers who the face of baseball was going to be last year? Anybody? Tell me. Who was it? Do you remember? Come on. Big trade. People in Boston were despondent. People in LA were happy. Mookie Betts. Is he the face of baseball now? Did he take over LA? What about Aaron Judge in New York? He was going to take over baseball. Then he got hurt. Mookie Betts is a World Series champion now. Two-time World Series champion. I think he won one with the Red Sox and one with the Dodgers. You active? You following him? Do you know what he's doing? Remember the commercials that you see during the World Series with Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger as they were playing off each other as MVPs, MVP candidates, the last two MVPs? Well, they both had mediocre 2020s. Where are the commercials? It is so difficult to find a player to build a social media and marketing strategy around because you need performance and you need winning. Why can it be LeBron James? Because for a decade, he has been the best and he's got the rings to prove it. Why does Patrick Mahomes get commercials? Because he is young. He is bubbly, gregarious. He's got a ring. He's got wins. And he's willing to take the time that it takes when you want to be the best on and off the field. There is not one major league baseball player right now who has the qualities both on the field and off the field to be the face of baseball. And we need someone to be the face because kids want the posters on the wall. Kids want the interaction on the social media. Kids want the autographs, the feeling that they can grow up and be like Mike. Do you remember when Michael Jordan had the commercials, be like Mike, and everyone wanted to be like Mike? There are so many platforms now. Think about this little fact. Across all social media, people in the NBA, players in the NBA, have 197 million followers. What do you think MLB has? Guess. 27 million. Do you want to know why MLB teams are worth so much? Because the people who buy them are thinking about their youth and they want to be with their ego. They want to be in the room where it happens. They want to own a baseball team because it brings them back to a time when they think about their father or their grandfather. And they think about what it is to sit in a suit and tie watching Players play baseball and they're heroes. They think about the time when they played the game that they felt they were good enough. And they think about the catches they had with their dad. 27 million followers on social media for MLB. We've got to change it. And to change it, the players need to have the ability, desire to do it. And the league has to let them do it. 
The league has to promote these players. The agents have to want these players to be promoted. What is one of the big differences? These baseball players, number one, are getting paid way more money younger. And number two, there's 162 games. There are no days off to go film commercials. There are no days off to take the time to be on social media. When you don't have a game during the course of a season, these players sit and play video games. They spend time with their family or they just downright sleep. I don't think that I can possibly explain to you enough how difficult it is to play 162 games. The grind that it is for Major League Baseball players makes the NFL and NBA looks, look like nursery school. Coco wants me to tell you that Mike Trout has 5.1 million followers. That's the most of MLB. LeBron has 148. Yeah, that's not really close, Coca. Mike Trout at 5 million? Come on. We need to do better. We need Mike Trout to get to 10 or 15 million, and we need him to play in October. So when you ask why is MLB abandoned kids media, they're not abandoning it. Believe me, they're going to copy what the NFL did with Nickelodeon. Believe me, they spend time all day trying to figure out how to engage kids and millennials. They are doing everything they can in their minds, but without the cooperation of the players, it's simply not going to happen. And you want to help me with your kids learning who Aaron Judge is? Put a poster of Aaron Judge in your classroom. Contact the Yankees and ask Aaron Judge to record a lesson on Google Chrome Classbook. See if he can be a guest. I wanted our players to be involved with kids in the Miami area so badly, and it was pulling teeth getting them to do it. Players in baseball don't like doing things when they're not playing. So I appreciate that question. I appreciate all of your questions here on the Nothing Personal end of month mailbag bonus episode. I love doing these. We did not get to many of your questions, but guess what? We're going to have more in February because that's what we do. Remember, that's it for today's show. We'll be back Monday. It's just business. It's nothing personal. 